invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. We're going to be at the end of that chapter this morning. Matthew 13. Have you ever told someone a story or you told someone something that actually happened in your life? And um, well, I'm going to turn this down. And they didn't believe you. It's something that's important to you. You told them the story. You said, hey, this happened to me. And they're just looking at you like, I don't believe a word you're saying. That's kind of what we're looking at this morning. It amazes me the skeptics we have among us. It used to be walking on the moon. 20% of Americans still believe that man never walked on the moon. We got pictures of it. They just think it was filmed in a studio somewhere in Hollywood. And they have some conspiracy theories of the way the shadows were shaped that just don't believe man ever walked on the moon. But the amazing thing is some of those same people believe that professional wrestling is real. So it amazes me what some people will believe and what some people just really struggle to believe. The worst part of it is people that look at creation, people that come to the ocean and look at the waves, they look at the stars and somehow think all that happened by accident. Aren't we just lucky that it all worked out that way? No, we're blessed by God. In fact, the Bible says that his invisible attributes have been evident since creation that people would believe that there's a God, and yet some don't, and it says they're without excuse. We're going to look at two pictures this morning of unbelief, two passages of Scripture at the end of chapter 13, the beginning of chapter 14, two pictures of unbelief. Let me read the first example of unbelief. Just to give you context, here's where we've been the last couple of weeks, but in Matthew 13, Jesus teaches eight parables. Some of the parables he tells in front of the crowd, and then he brings the disciples to him, and it really kind of is a shift in his Galilean ministry where he now pulls those closest to him to himself, and he's teaching them, and he uses parables to teach them. And it's a great teaching device because what he basically does is take something very familiar like sowing seeds or fishing, and he puts something beside it that's unfamiliar and says, this is like this. And throughout chapter 13, he's been talking about the kingdom of heaven. Well, he is now withdrawn from Galilee, and he's headed back to his hometown. Let me read verses 53 to the end of the chapter. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there, and he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not this is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. So a few things I want you to see in this passage. He's finished teaching in, in parables. He's now gone to the synagogue in Nazareth. Now I want you to think about this. He grew up in Nazareth. So he's gone back home. He's gone back to the synagogue that he would have grown up worshiping in. This is where he would have been taught as a young Jewish boy. In fact, in Luke's gospel, we see the first time he visited this synagogue, they also rejected him. In fact, as an adult, when he came back, not only did they reject him, they planned to kill him right then. They were going to lead him out to a hill and throw him off of it to kill him. And he escapes from the crowd. And now, nearly three years later, toward the end of his ministry, he's back in that synagogue, at least a little over two years later, 
And here's what they say. The first thing is they, they, they have to find a human explanation. People who don't believe in God already have a vested interest. I don't believe in God. So anything that happens that looks like God, they have to come up with a human explanation for it. So look what they do. They start asking the question, where did this man get this wisdom? Apparently the thought never crossed their mind that it came from God. It's just, where did he get this? And of course, they should have taken credit for some of it because they had been the rabbis that had taught this young boy from the time he was born, really up till he was about 30 years old. He had worshipped in this synagogue. So they should have said, we did a good job teaching him. But they knew it wasn't them. They knew there was something more. This guy, Jesus, had an amazing insight into the Word of God. Now, you and I know, why did he have the amazing insight? He's God. That's why he has the amazing insight. But they cannot bring themselves to acknowledge that this is God. So they say, where did he get this? Where are these miraculous powers coming from? They had to acknowledge that Jesus had done miraculous things. Jesus had healed people, and they knew that. So they're scratching their head. Where, where did this come from? And then they get even, even more into the irrelevant, and they say, isn't this the carpenter's son? They obviously knew Joseph. It's possible by this time that Joseph has passed away, and scholars believe Jesus had probably taken up the trade of his father and was also a carpenter himself. Back in those days, a carpenter not only worked with wood, but other hard, hard elements like stone and bricks and those kind of things. In fact, if you keep up with Israel, they've discovered a town in the last year near Nazareth and uh, that, that was there at the time of Christ. And it's very possible that Jesus helped build some of those homes in that town. And so it's a neat find that they're still discovering in Israel. But isn't this the carpenter's son? It, it, we know Mary. Isn't that his mother? They name all of his brothers. Aren't those his brothers? Aren't all his sisters with us? How many sisters did Jesus have? We don't know. At least two because they say, aren't all of them here with us? So they take the miraculous and put human feet to it and just say, we can't figure this out. So they, they turn from miraculous really to irrelevant. We're scratching our heads. Where did he get this power? It, it can't be from God because he's from Nazareth. We know his parents. We know his brothers. We know his sisters. The problem is they knew a lot about Jesus. They didn't know Jesus. And what's worse than that, they knew all about the Old Testament. They knew the prophecies of all the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus had perfectly fulfilled as the coming Messiah. 330 prophecies about Christ in the Old Testament that he is, has fulfilled and is fulfilling. They can't accept that. Why? Because they had in their mind what the Messiah was supposed to look like, and it didn't look like this. Even though the Bible was perfectly fulfilled by Jesus, they knew a lot about Jesus. They knew about the Messiah, but they never made the connection that it was Jesus, one and the same with the Messiah. That's the difference in knowing about something and actually knowing something. My hero growing up was Jack Nicholas. I loved playing golf, and I kept a scrapbook on Jack Nicholas probably from the time I was about 12 years old. I could tell you things about him that he's colorblind, that he's born on January 21st, his wife's name's Barbara, I knew his kids' names. I knew where he lived. I knew all this stuff about him. But one day I was at Amen Corner and it started to rain and I got under a tower, television tower right there at number 12 if you've ever been there. This was during the practice round. And me and just a couple of my friends were the only ones under there. And all of a sudden I heard somebody say, do you mind if we get under here with you? And it was Jack Nicholas. He stood this close to me. 
My friend knows this is my hero, and he's amazed. I'm not saying anything because I'm just dumbfounded. Now, here's the problem. I knew a lot about him. If I'd said, hey, Jack, good to see you, he would not have said, well, hey, Robert, good to see you. In fact, I was kind of amazed at the fact that all of a sudden now there's a bunch of people under this tower. You know why? It wasn't because I was under there. It's because Jack Nicholas was under there. See, I knew a lot about him. He didn't know me. A few years later, I was watching a guy hit balls on the range, also at Augusta National. And I was, people would ask me, who's this, who's this? And I could tell a lot of times by the kind of bag the golfer was carrying or who, what his caddy looked like, or at least by the name on the back of the caddy's uniform, I knew who the golfers were. But there was a guy hitting, hitting golf balls. He had a straw hat on, and I could not, people say, who is that? I said, I, I don't know. He looks for me. I can't, I mean, I've named everybody up and down the range. This little kid behind us, he looked like he was about eight years old. This little kid behind us was listening to our conversation, just kind of, you know, he was kind of paying attention to what we are saying, and I'm just kind of getting annoyed by this little kid. But every time somebody asked me to, who is this golfer? You know, this kid would kind of get a little closer, and finally he said, that's Dan Forsman. I'm like, that's right, it's Dan Forsman. And I looked, and this little kid had a name tag, and it said, Forsman. <laughs> this was his son that was listening to us, and I thought, what a great illustration. I don't even know the guy's name. But he has a relationship with this guy. This is his son. If he had crawled under the ropes and walked over to his dad, his dad would have said, come here, son. If I'd gone under the ropes, what would have happened? Security guards <laughs> would have ushered me off the golf course. That's the difference in knowing about something and actually knowing the person. So that's the issue that Jesus is dealing with. And the amazing thing is people who are couched in unbelief. I can't believe it's this, so they have to come up with another explanation. And they really haven't come up with a good one because they're still scratching their heads. How's he doing the things he's doing? We're amazed at his teaching, and yet we know where he's from. second thing I notice about people with unbelief is they're offended by the truth. It says they took offense at him. I was sharing this with our staff on Tuesday, and I said, now this does not mean they went over to like a chain-link fence and pull it out of the ground. That's what it sounds like. They took a fence at him. They're going to beat him with a fence. No. It means they're offended by Jesus. What has Jesus done to offend them? He speaks as one having authority, and it offended them. Why? Because they thought they had the authority. We're talking about the rabbis, the leaders of the synagogue, the, the upper crust of Jewish culture. They're offended by Christ. I think part of it is they can't figure him out. The other part is he speaks as one having authority. actually kind of makes them look bad, so they took offense at him. In fact, the word that is used there for offense is, where, is the word scandalize. It's, it's where we get our word scandal or scandalize. It literally means to cause to stumble or to entrap or trip up. And it's amazing in our culture. People are offended by God. In fact, people are offended by you as a Christian in our culture. And, and the question is, if you don't believe in God, why are you so offended that I believe in a God that you don't think exists? Why does that make you so uncomfortable? Why are you offended? One of our new great theologians named Phil Robertson. I read a quote. Anybody know who Phil Robertson is? I've got a picture of him. I like this quote. Truth sounds like hate to those who hate the truth. Now, I don't know if he made that up or not, but he, his picture was associated when I saw it. And I thought... Yeah, that's the culture we live in right now. People hate, it sounds like hate because people hate the truth. 
So they're offended by the truth. Now, I just had to think a little bit about, let's get away from Phil Robertson back to us. Do you know that people are offended at church? Some of them are church people. Some of them are Christians. Some of them aren't. Some of them are just taking shots at the church. I, I did a little search and found these are actual statements that have been made to pastors about people that were offended by something. And I'm going to read them because I've heard some of these. Here's some of the things people get offended about. The music's too loud, it's too slow, it's too fast, it's too old, or it's too new. The music director wouldn't let me sing in the choir. I'm offended. I'm not going back to that church. music director wouldn't let me sing in the choir. Maybe that's a good thing. The pews or the chairs are too hard or they're too soft. I'm just not getting fed. I've heard that one. It's full of hypocrites. I love that one. Yeah, so is the grocery store. But you still eat. Here's one I've heard. They try and get rough youth to come. I don't want my, I don't want to be a part of a church that invites kids with problems. I interviewed, I had a church that wanted to interview me to be a youth pastor. One of the questions they asked was, what are you going to do about kids coming to our church that aren't part of our church? I thought, well, I'm going to try real hard to get them to come. They said, well, some of our parents don't like that. In case you got to get that picture out. We've moved on from Phil Robertson. Thank you. Let's just go to a blank screen or something. I'm tired of even looking at me. Here's another. They just want my hard-earned cash. I've heard that. Preacher, all he talks about is money. If the preacher talking about money offends you, it's because you've got problems with your money. The preacher preaches too long. He doesn't preach long enough. They have drums there. <laughs> it's amazing the places people will go that have drums. It doesn't bother them, but they can't come in church. And then you take them to Psalms where it talks about praise the Lord with cymbals and drums and stuff like that. And you go, well, that's Old Testament. <laughs> it's too cold. It's too hot. No one checked on me after I missed three weeks in a row. Maybe they were glad you weren't there. I was part of a church where 17 families pulled out, and the next Sunday the pastor preached a sermon called The Blessed Deduction. And I had a lady walk up to me after about three months, and this lady had never said a bad word about anybody. Her name was Miss Thelma. She was in her 80s. She was our greeter at church. She came and said, Robert, those people that left, you don't think they'll come back, do you? So people are offended. Someone I don't like goes there. The preacher yells too much. There's too many old people. They cater to young people. The preacher gave a sermon directed specifically at me. <laughs> the church did me wrong about 15 years ago. Not a single person asked me how I've been doing. The church is too missions-minded. Someone corrected my child. Well, maybe somebody needed to. I just don't like church politics. Here's one I've heard. Somebody was in my seat. I served as youth pastor at a church. There's a lady. Her name was Miss Helen. She carried a wooden pocketbook. And if you sat in her seat, this is what she would say. I guess you know you're in my seat. And it's kind of intimidating when she's standing over you with this wooden pocketbook. I was afraid she was going to hit somebody with her pocketbook. Now think about that. Somebody's visiting the church. There aren't names on these pews. I guess you know you're in my seat. Well, okay, you want me to move? Yeah. <laughs> so people can get offended about the color of the carpet. 
whether or not the pews have cushions, it's amazing. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus offended people. Here's what he offended them by, the truth. They were offended by the truth. See, he had gone to his hometown. Normally there's comfort in going back to, his home, back to your hometown. But Jesus said, a prophet's not without honor, except in his hometown and even among his own family. What's Jesus saying? Hey, I'm God in the flesh. I've come here to save you. I'm telling you the truth, and you won't receive it just because you know where I'm from. And Jesus, his own family, didn't believe it. John chapter 7, verse 5 said, even his own brothers didn't believe him. Now, they came to believe him afterwards. In fact, at least two of them were leaders in the first century church, James and Jude, and wrote letters that have become part of the New Testament. So not only that, but they missed the power of God. They had God in their midst. People who are trapped in unbelief missed the miraculous. They missed the power of God. In fact, it says that Jesus did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Jesus could have done more there, but because of their unbelief, he didn't do many miracles. He did heal a few people. But he didn't spend a lot of time in Nazareth during the three years of his public ministry because of their unbelief. Let's look at a second example, continuing on in chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of the, his dinner gift. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took away his body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. Second picture of unbelief. At that time, Jesus has taught all over the region of Galilee. Tiberias is right on the water, right on the Sea of Galilee. And apparently Jesus never went through Tiberias. He went through Capernaum and some of the other towns around the Sea of Galilee. But he avoided Tiberias. And probably part of the reason he avoided it is he didn't want to rush Herod to arrest him because obviously that was going to happen at some point in time. And so at that time, Herod the Tetrarch, Tetrarch meant ruler over a fourth section. And really he had kind of been slighted. He's given the fourth section, but his section is Galilee. A lot of people kind of turned up their noses to the region of Galilee. And just in case we get our Herods confused, when Jesus was born, there was a Herod that was in charge, but he was Herod the Great. He was ruler over that whole area, but he's died now. We know he's died because he wanted to kill Jesus. Remember that? The wise men come to see Jesus. They, they talk to Herod the Great. And Joseph is warned in, warned in a dream, get Jesus out of Bethlehem. And so they went down to Egypt. And then he's told later, okay, Herod's died. You can come back. So he comes back and doesn't settle in Bethlehem or Jerusalem, settles in Nazareth. So the new guy in charge is also named Herod. He's the son of Herod the Great. 
and he's ruler of a fourth part of Israel. In fact, this Herod had five children, and two or three of them were Herod's, Herod Philip or Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, which is who this one was. And I know I'm giving you a lot of history, but it'll make sense here in a minute. But he had heard the news about Jesus, never met him. He, we know, is intrigued by Christ. In fact, he wants Jesus to come do some miracles for him. This will be the same Herod that Jesus faces at the crucifixion. Remember, he goes before Pilate, and Pilate says, hey, Herod happens to be in town. Send him over to Herod. And basically, Herod had always wanted to meet Jesus and said, hey, do some miraculous power for me, and Jesus wouldn't do it. So that's the same Herod. Here's what he's thinking. He's hearing about Jesus. He's hearing about the power that's displayed by Jesus. And he thinks it's John the Baptist. Now, what had happened to John the Baptist and who had made it happen was Herod. It's this point of the story that Matthew takes us on a flashback. Now, if you were watching television, this is where somebody would start stroking their chin and looking over and the screen would get blurry. Remember those kind of flashbacks? And so Matthew's about to tell us what had happened previous, months earlier. And so we get to verse 3. And it tell, we're reminded that John had been arrested by Herod. So in the first picture, we see that people are offended by the truth. John had preached the truth against Herod. Herod was offended by the truth and had him bound in prison because of Herodias, which was his wife. Now, isn't that a lovely name for a woman? Herod married to Herodias. I don't know how that wedding went. Do you, Herod, take Herodias? To be your lawfully wedded wife, I, I married a couple one time. Her name was Joy, and his name was Joey. And I had to really make sure I pronounced correctly so they knew who I was talking to. Do you, Joy, take Joy to be your lawfully wedded husband? The funny thing about that, too, is he was a police officer, and I didn't know he was going to do this, but when I pronounced a man and wife, he put handcuffs on his wife and walked down the aisle. But not only was Herodias had a weird name, she was married to Herod's brother. And not only that, she was the daughter of one of his other brothers. So she was not only his sister-in-law, she was also his niece. And I am my own grandpa, if you know that song. So that's what's going on with this relationship with Herod. And John had been saying to him, you shouldn't be doing that. You're committing adultery. You're, you're sinning in this relationship that you have. In fact, it says that John had been saying that, which is, probably means he said it more than one time. And it may have even been that Herod had called John into his presence because he had heard about what John had been doing. And he wanted to see what kind of miraculous power John might have. And John gets in there and doesn't do any miracles, but he says, you're a sinner. Well, that's offensive. And so Herod is offended by the truth, and yet he had power to do something about it, so he puts John in prison. In fact, it says he wanted to put him to death, but he feared the crowd. And I want you to think about something. Herod was afraid of a lot. Four things I'm going to tell you in a minute that Herod was afraid of. He was a scaredy cat, and he was henpecked at that. But he wanted to put him to death. The reason he didn't is the crowd considered him a prophet. and He knew if I put him to death, there's going to be a riot, a revolt of these followers of John. So I'll just leave him in prison. He had probably been in prison for close to a year before Herod's birthday came. Well, Herod's birthday comes. Birthday celebrations were a huge deal in pagan culture. Jews really kind of thought they were shameful at that time. And so they didn't really do a lot 
with birthdays, but just imagine Herod's throwing a party for himself, and he's invited all these dignitaries over, probably political leaders and military leaders are at this birthday party, and they are drinking, and Herod has got to be drunk by this time, because his daughter, stepdaughter comes out and dances, and probably a very seductive dance. Don't be thinking dance recital here. This was probably a late teenage girl, 16, 17-year-old girl, does a dance at the bidding of her mother, and Herod liked it so much, was pleased is what the word says, that he offers her an oath. He promised an oath. And here's what he says. I'll give you anything you ask for. Now think about that. we got some 16- or 17-year-old girls here. If some guy that had the power to give you anything said, what would you like? I'll give you anything you ask for. Ask for something a little better than some dude's head. I know you may have dated some guy and you think, I wish I had his head on a platter. That way I could keep my eye on him. But she goes back to her mother and says, what should I ask for? And the mother said, ask him right now for John to bat his head on a platter. Here's the problem. Herod's made a promise and an oath. In fact, the word oath means a limit or restraint. So he's put a limit on his, on his promise. I'm going to give you something. Here's the limit. Anything you ask for. One of the gospel accounts of this says he specifies up to half my kingdom. She goes back and asks her mother. I don't even know how that conversation went. Mom, you know that guy you're married to? He said he'll give me anything I ask for. What do you think I ought to ask for? And she said, ask for John to bat his head on the platter. We don't hear any conversation going on here, but that's exactly what she asked for. In fact, the way she asked for it is, give me here. Why do you think she wanted to give it to him here? Because she didn't want for, wait for him to sober up and get in his right mind and think, I don't want to kill John the Baptist. And so Herod lived in fear. People who are trapped in unbelief live in fear, and that's exactly where we see Herod. It says, because of his oath, he was grieved. He was sad. He was distressed. He did not want to kill John the Baptist. In fact, Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 20, said that Herod didn't want to kill him. He was afraid of him. And one reason he didn't want to kill him is he liked talking to him. Verse 20 of Mark 6 says, For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. So Herod didn't want to kill John the Baptist, but here's his problem. I've just made this oath in front of all my friends, in front of all these people I'm trying to impress. And so Herod had him killed. Herod filled the mul- he feared the multitude. He was afraid if I kill John the Baptist, they think he's a prophet, they're going to riot. He feared John because John's a righteous man. He feared his wife. And he even feared his peers, the people that he had there with him that were the political and military dignitaries. And so he had John the Baptist beheaded and had his head brought in and given to the girl. Now, what does she do with it? She takes it right over and gives it to her mother. People who hate the truth and live in unbelief have a fear of the truth. Was what John was preaching, was it true? Absolutely. Had Herod committed a sin by taking his brother's wife and marrying her? Yes, because he had been married to somebody himself. In fact, there had been a political pact made with an adjoining king. Herod had married her daughter. Well, he gets rid of her daughter, his daughter. And Herodias gets rid of her husband, and they get married together. And John said, you shouldn't have done that. You took your brother's wife. And besides the fact, you're now married to your niece. 
And we see Herod again at the crucifixion of Christ in Luke 23, 8. Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. So a year or so later, the same Herod is the one that Jesus goes before in Jerusalem before he's crucified, sent by Pilate and then sent from Herod back over to Pilate. So that's the truth about people who are trapped in unbelief. I just want to close with a few applications for believers. For folks who've trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior, they see believers see God in the action. In other words, when you see something that can't be explained by human means, you know God did that. When the world sees it, they come up with some explanation. How did all this get created? Well, it just happened, you know, just kind of an accident. Big Bang Theory or something like that. You know, this just kind of... Isn't it amazing how all this came together? You look at the human body, even parts of the human body like the eyeball, and think, how did that happen by accident? It didn't. It's evidence of intelligent design. It was created by God, but the world who can't believe in God has to come up with human explanations. We take joy in the miraculous. We take joy in things that we look at and say, God did that. If you've ever prayed for somebody that was sick and they were healed, you know God did that. The doctors had given up hope. And yet that person's walking now. It's a miracle. God did that. Biggest miracle you'll ever see is somebody that trusts Christ as their Lord and Savior. God did that. Second thing, Believers are comforted in the truth, not offended, not offended by the truth. We're comforted in the truth. We turn to God's Word and find comfort there, especially in the day and age we live in where everybody thinks truth is just kind of relative. I've heard somebody say, well, that may be true for you. Wow. That means everybody comes up with their own version of the truth. In fact, one of our political, one of our presidents from days gone by, not our current president, but one a long time ago, who was caught in adultery, said, you haven't heard my version of the truth. Oh, really? The truth's only got one version. If, if, you, if you add spin to it, it's not the truth anymore. So believers are comforted by the truth. And last, believers have no reason to fear. I realize the world we live in. For teenagers, you don't have the perspective that some people in this room have. Just to see, it seems like we're going downhill fast as a culture. One of the one of the comedians that I follow on Twitter said, that warm breeze you feel on your face is the handbasket picking up speed. Some of you will know what I mean by that. So do we live in fear of that? Absolutely not. Read the Bible. We pray for our country. We pray for our president. We pray for our leaders. But we recognize our hope is not there. Our hope is in Christ. And He's made us a promise that He will not break. He's not going to leave us or forsake us. In fact, I love Romans 8.15 that says, For you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry out, Abba, Father. That's the comfort for the believer. The world looks at things they can't explain and just try to explain it humanly. We look at stuff that you can't explain and say God's in action. And we find comfort there. Comfort in the truth.
lastly, A.T. Robertson, a great theologian of years gone by, not related to Phil, said it's better to have a head like John's and lose it than to have an ordinary head and keep it. And the truth is the culture we live in, calling sin, sin in this culture may be costly. It may cost you friends. It may cost you more than that. But the truth's the truth, and that's where we stand. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, truly we are comforted by the truth because we know that you're all-powerful. You're able to do things, the Bible says, that are exceedingly abundantly beyond anything we could ask or think. So, Lord, for people that in this day and age just look at the culture around us and think, how did we get to this point? And where are we going from here? There's good news. There's good news. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we thank you for that. We, we take comfort in that. Even when things around us seem so out of control and outside of our understanding, we recognize that you're not caught off guard. Things have not escaped your notice. It's still all under your influence and your power. And one day it will end with the return of Christ. And we look forward to that day. Comfort us in the truth, in Jesus' name. Amen. Our group from Mooresville is going to stand at this point and lead us in our benediction.